Um, look at the screen. Can you see today's, the title of today's message? Um, any of you guys leftover people? You know what I'm talking about? It's the people that will eat leftovers until the very last piece is gone. And it's, you know, doesn't matter if it's New Year's Day and it's turkey leftover from Thanksgiving. Let's see those hands. Who are you? Okay. That's my father-in-law. My father-in-law's that way. He's never met a leftover he wouldn't eat, which is crazy to me. And so sometimes when he's at our house, there are moments where I just can't. I mean, I just can't. It's just done. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that leftover needs to go. So we'll throw it in the trash, but we have to hide it. We have to like bury it underneath things because he will be offended if he sees it. So, you know, I, I am kind of a leftover person, but not, not completely. Um, if you are leftover people, how many of you do the smell test? Anybody? Okay. You want to, you know, get a good sniff in there to see if what we cooked days ago is still good. You know, any of you like doggy bag or to-go, we don't call them doggy bags anymore, do we? To-go box people at restaurants. Absolutely. If I paid that much money for it, it's coming home with me for sure. As I was looking at Facebook last night, I saw somebody had a post and it said, uh, we do not throw away perfectly good food in this house. We put it in Tupperware. Then we put Tupperware in the fridge, then let it go bad. Then we throw it away. <laughs> How many of you is that? <laughs> that would be the Clark house. Things get moved to the back and we just forget it's there. You know, the title of the message today is about leftovers and you'll see why in a moment. But do you know that leftovers weren't even a thing until like the 20th century? Um, makes sense, right? Because until there were refrigerators and ice boxes or those kind of things, people didn't do it. In fact, as I was reading this week, it actually said that cookbooks would often underneath the recipe of what you were making, the bottom of it would give directions for how to pickle, cure, and salt the remains to prolong the life of the ingredients. Isn't that fascinating? I'd never seen that. In fact, said in even in World War I, eating leftovers was seen as patriotic, doing your patriotic duty to eat those leftovers. So um, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, perusing the internet and just found some facts about leftovers, which I thought was fascinating. It's like, What's the percentage of people that hate leftovers? Any guesses? How much? 25. 25. What'd you say back there? 60? 42. Look at that. You must know. It is actually 40. 40%. Two out of five people hate leftovers. So put your hands up if that's you in the room. Yep, I see those hands. That's how it is. Um, what about if you had to guess, what's the top reason for eating leftovers? What would you say that reason is? To avoid the waste, lazy. <laughs> what else? Any other guesses? Sometimes it tastes better. Okay. Uh, yes, avoid wasting food. 41% of people said that. 26% said they'd do that because I enjoy them. And uh, 18%, only 18% said they do it to save money. But speaking of save money, do you know how much money this study said you could save if you eat leftovers annually? It's not as much as you'd think. I don't know if it's worth it. $1,000. Only $1,000 a year. I don't know if that's true or not. Who knows? You know, I found this on the internet, so who knows if this is accurate or not. But, uh, and here's the last one. Um, don't put this one up yet. I want to see some guesses. What generation, age range, eats more leftovers? How many of you think it's like the senior, let's say, 65-plus group? Lots of hands there. How many of you say it's my generation, we'll say 35 to 50 in that range? Not a few hands. How many of you would say 25 to 35 range? No hands. You are all wrong. 
believe it or not, it said 25 to 34-year-olds are the generation that eat the most leftovers. And honestly, by the reaction of that demographic in the first service, I believe it. <laughs> because all of them were like, oh yeah, we definitely were eating leftovers. And I'm like, oh, that's surprising to me. But uh, I'm not really a leftover person. I'm a practical person, so I don't like throwing food away. But I will eat it if I have to. But there is a limit. I, I can't do days and days. That's just too much. I'll make something else. Enough about leftovers, right? We're, we're talking about leftovers today because the group of people we're going to be talking about kind of can be described as leftovers, maybe. They were just kind of lukewarm in their faith. And Jesus has something to say to them. And so we're going to dig into what Jesus had to say to this group. But we've come to the end of our summer series. Can you believe that? We've This is the 11th week in this series. <clears throat> and every week <clears throat> we've been talking about Jesus dining with people. Now, I've said it before. I've been really surprised at the number of times Jesus' ministry centered around food. A lesson to be learned there, isn't there? But uh, when we get to the end of our summer series, it also means that summer is getting close to being done. And did you guys know that metro area metro teachers report tomorrow? Some of them do to go back to school um, as a parent. Yay! <laughs> I'm so excited! Oh, sorry. Did I do that out loud? Um, but every week we've looked at how Jesus built his ministry around food. And I hope that it's been instructive for us because I hope that we've seen how being around the table can be helpful for us as a, as a model for our own faith and relationships and even hospitality and spiritual growth. And today we're going to conclude it by stepping out of the Gospels, because we basically were in Luke all summer, and we're going to go to the book of Revelation, where we're going to find a struggling church, although the problem is they didn't know they were struggling. They thought everything was just hunky-dory. In fact, I wrote it this way in my notes. I said, they thought they were dining on faith's steak, but Jesus is saying their faith is really lukewarm leftovers. And how, what I want us to see is what Jesus says to this church, but then I also want to take a look and see how the solution to what they're dealing with is an invitation to dine with Jesus and how that can take care of the struggles they're having. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, but let me talk a little bit about Revelation because I know that that book, for some, you're like, yay, I love that book. I don't know why, but you do. And for others of you, you're like, please, let's go anywhere else. That book is so confusing because as you think about Revelation, it's, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a wild and crazy book. The first three chapters are really the easier part to understand. You find Jesus speaking to churches, and he's, he's sending messages to these churches through John. But the rest of the book and its meaning, you know, it, it talks about dragons. It talks about beasts and horses and trumpets and seals. No, not the barking seals, but broken seals in a, in a, in a warning. And that gets very confusing. But it's the recordings of a guy named John. And even that, there's some question on which John is it? Because some people would say, well, it's John, the beloved disciple who penned the gospel of John. Could be. There's also a guy that's John the Elder, different guy. Could be a different John altogether, but it really doesn't matter because it's somebody that's following Jesus. We believe that they were exiled to the island of Patmos for their faith. And while there, they have this very interesting encounter with God where there's this moment where Jesus is speaking, and in this speaking, God pulls back the curtain to allow him, this individual John, to see things from God's perspective. And when you start thinking about how most of that book is written, that letter is written, 
you understand that he's probably seeing things that he has no words for. He has no idea. There's, that's why we have dragons and beasts and horns and all these different things going on. And so we get this look into what is the, the way God sees it and the things to come. But from the beginning of the letter, what we have to understand is it's apocalyptic literature, which tells us it's mostly symbolic, not literal, not prescriptive, or some secret code about the end of the age. I want to say that again. It's not some secret code that God has given us to be deciphered about the things to come. In fact, next week we're going to dive into this new series called The End is Near. And you have to say it like that because there's a question mark at the end. And we want to figure out what is, how does Revelation even play into that. But I will say, if you want to learn more about it, there's a group that's called the Bible Project. Anybody heard of that? It's a wonderful group. They have done an amazing job for years producing videos to bring understanding to Scripture. And if you're interested in Revelation, I highly recommend go to BibleProject.com, look up Revelation. It's in two parts. Part one is 1 through 11. And listen to it. It's like a five to seven minute video where they do an incredible job of filling us in on kind of the background of what Revelation is all about. This letter was written to be a circular letter. That means it was meant to be passed around between several churches, and specifically seven churches in part of the world then known as Asia Minor. And in this, what we find at the beginning, those first three chapters, is Jesus speaking to these seven churches, giving them words. Some of these words are encouraging and uplifting, but some of them are not. Some of them are corrective, or even the word might be used, a rebuke for how they were exercising and living their faith. And as you get to the end of Revelation 3, you see that Jesus is speaking to a church in Laodicea. Now, I say Laodicea. How many of you have heard a sermon on Laodicea before? Any hands? A few? There you go. You may have heard that before. You often hear it as a salvation message because, behold, Jesus stands at the door and knock, and you need to accept him as your Lord and Savior. Out of context, just so you know, the letter is written to a church, people who have already committed their lives to following Jesus. And so this church at Laodicea, I want to provide some context to what Jesus is saying. Laodicea is a city, or was a city, in what is modern-day Turkey. And it was a wealthy city, very wealthy, with lots of trade taking place. It was actually even a banking center for that. So they had a lot of resources. In fact, they were so wealthy that in AD 60, that there was an earthquake that hit that region, a devastating earthquake. And um, the emperor reached out to them and said, hey, we would like to provide you government funding to help you recover. And they had so much money, they said... Thanks, but no thanks. We don't need your money. We can rebuild ourselves. That's important as we read what Jesus says to this church. Not only that, they had a medical school. In fact, people would come from far away to train as doctors, specializing in ophthalmology. In fact, they were known for a healing salve that they had developed from this Phrygian powder that you could put on the eyes to help bring healing. Again, Remember that. It's going to be important in just a moment. They were also famous for their production of textiles, specifically developing a breed of sheep whose wool was black and a very fine quality and highly sought after. 
So this city had everything they needed. Well, except for one thing, water. They did not have a good source of water. So what they did is they built aqueducts that would drive, bring water from various cities. And these are pictures I found on the internet. Trisha, you can help me know if they're authentic or not. I'm not sure. They said they were, you know, some internet. It's the internet. But they're examples of at least what they could have looked like. But because they didn't have a good source of water, they had to bring the water in from various places. And so to the north of them was a city called Heropolis, and it was known for its healing hot springs. Anybody ever been to a hot spring before? Arkansas has a city called Hot Springs, Arkansas. Tourism abounds because people want to go sit in the healing waters of hot springs. Well, Hot healing waters that are hot like this often have a very high mineral content. And so what would happen is they would take this water, they would build these aqueducts, and they would pipe it in. The problem was is it was about four or five miles from one city to the other. And as that water traveled that distance, what was going to happen to it? It's going to cool down. As it cooled down, the mineral concentration would increase and therefore, a couple things would happen. First, the pipes would then begin to collect the minerals on the side. It's like living in West Des Moines. Anybody know West Des Moines pipes? Yep, you do. They just kind of close up after a while, don't they? Um, and then also, the water that did make it, because the mineral concentration was so high, it was unhealthy to drink. It could actually make you sick, make you vomit. Um, but there was also another city a little further away to the southeast called Colossae. And they had a wonderful supply of cold water from a snow-capped Mount Cadmus. And so you have this water kind of flowing into this city. But the problem with Colossae is it was 11 miles away. Anybody see something that could happen with that water traveling that distance in modern-day Turkey? Yeah. It's not going not gonna to stay nice and, and cold from that mountain, is it? Not at all. Now, why am I mentioning all this? Because this is so significant to the context of understanding what Jesus is saying to these people. In fact, let's just take a look and see what does Jesus say. So it says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write. Now, if you have a Bible and you're reading this, these words are in red. Your Bible does that because these are the words as John's recording them from Jesus to this church. It says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. That is just a big fancy way of saying these are the words of Jesus. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. You see any significance to that language being used in this church? He says, I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Spit you out. Such a nice, pleasant way to say vomit. You make me sick. That's the part that we need to understand is there's a real emotion behind what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says, you say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. Hmm, sounds like they did say that. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Isn't it interesting? Rich becomes poor. The medical school becomes blind. The textiles known for their fine wool, becomes naked. He says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? To know what we know about the city, 
to see how Jesus was specifically speaking to the things that they were resting on. Jesus continues, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my father's throne just as I was victorious and sat down at my, with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if we, just taking what we've read, if we had to describe what this church thought about themselves, what would you say? What do you think this church thought about themselves? A little bit of arrogance there. What else? Prideful? Comfortable. Mm -hmm. Self-sufficient. Isn't that the truth? Anything else? Self-righteous. Self yeah. Isn't that interesting? That this is, I mean, it's very easy to see as they, as Jesus describes how this church sees themselves, we can come up with these pictures. I'm very curious, though, as we think about those words, arrogant, self-sufficient, self-righteous, comfortable. Hmm. Could those words describe any other churches we know? But let's don't stop yet. <laughs> they were a church that thought they had it all together. They did. Most likely, by all outside standards, they did. I mean, if, we, if they were a church in the 21st century, they would be in the magazine of Outreach Magazine's top 100 and fastest growing churches. You know, using our usual 21st century measurements for churches, we'd say they had nice buildings and lots of activities for kids and families. In fact, a million ministries for you to pick from. I'm sure they supported mission work and mission projects, and they had impressive worship services with great bands and good lighting and all these things. But all the things that they were hanging their hats on, notice how Jesus puts his finger right on the very things that this church would highlight as their successes in their annual ministry plan. He tells them, you are wretched and pitiful. Now, I don't know about you, but those are very strong words. <laughs> Amy was sitting in the front row in the first service, and I said, Amy, I'm going to do your annual evaluation. You are wretched and pitiful. <laughs> she didn't appreciate that very well. No, isn't that, I mean, those words are not easy words, benign words. They're very emotional words and certainly not a great place to start. And then Jesus begins to pick at the very things that they, they celebrated, that they thought made them so wonderful. You are poor. You're not rich. You're poor. You can't see. You're blind. You're not clothed in the finest clothes of your region. You are naked. And we see that how Jesus is looking at them, and man just says, all the things your culture says you have right, I'm telling you aren't. There's a phrase here that I don't know if you noticed or not, but I think we need to pay attention to it, because Jesus said, you do not realize. Those words strike me, because I think what makes us arrogant, what makes us self-sufficient, self-righteous, comfortable, in these places, prideful, is we don't realize, right? We don't realize where we are, who we are, or even see things the way God sees them. 
And Jesus says to them, he says, I need you to pay attention to the spiritual condition. And he says something very interesting because he doesn't say to them, look at your heart, change your heart. Did you catch what he said to them? He said, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. What were they doing? I'll tell you, in my study this week, it wasn't like this was a church that was probably just selfish. They weren't just focused on their own stuff. They were probably doing some of the things that made them look like a very healthy and good church. But the church was very guilty of pride and self-sufficiency. They were doing the right things. In fact, uh, Pastor Tim Keller talked about it in, in something I read this week. He says that the supreme passion of Laodicea's hearts, their highest love, had been set on something besides Jesus. And as a result, there was no jealousy for God, no zealousness for God. There's not intimacy and passion and joy and wonder in their faith and in their walk with Him. I think what we would look at is we would say this was a place that was doing the right things for the wrong reasons. They're just going through the motions. There was a way to do church. There's a way to be church. And they'd figured that out and they thought, that's okay, let's just phone that in. But the challenging part of that is as my message team was talking about it this week, we kind of thought, this isn't the first time that God has leaned in to address a group of people who are just going through the motions. In fact, several of the prophets in the Old Testament lean into that and talk to the people and they say to them, you know what, you're doing the right things, but I don't like any of it. God says that to them. In fact, Isaiah chapter 1, just one example, God is speaking. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feast and your appointed festivals. Get this, I hate with all my being. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Wow, that's hard, isn't it? That is harsh. And there's a moment where we want to sit back and we go, but not my God, that, not my Jesus. And sometimes we build this image of Jesus that's just this teddy bear Jesus. And he just, I love him and I snuggle him and he's all good. But what Jesus is doing here with these people is he's, he's pointing out to them exactly what they need to see. And really... What is the most loving thing you can do for somebody? Sometimes love says having the hard conversation. Sometimes love says meaning caring enough to speak into it. I mean, if I'm driving a car and you see me heading right off the side of a mountain, it is not love to go, well, I guess he'll see it and he'll figure it out. No, it's love to go, stop driving towards the edge of a mountain. That's love, isn't it? That's what Jesus is doing here for this church. But see, the difference with what Jesus is doing and what we like to do is we like to package that up with a little guilt and shame. You know, when we see somebody making mistakes, we want them to feel bad about it. We want them to feel really guilty. And so, you know, we lean in and we're going to point it out. In fact, in our culture today, we love to point out people's mistakes, not privately to them, but let's do it on social media where all the world can chime in and put their two cents on it too. Because, I mean, what's the point of correcting somebody if we can't embarrass them publicly? I mean, that's really, I'm not saying we do that. 
But we see many examples of that, don't we? Each and every day. But did you see what Jesus did? A 180 from what I just described. Jesus rebukes and Jesus corrects. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, be earnest, be zealous, be jealous for God, be passionate, be self-sacrificial. Stop going through the motions. And he uses the word we don't talk about much today, but he says, and repent. He says, change your mind in a way that changes how you live. And after that, what does he do? Did you see it? Jesus doesn't go, and good luck to you. I'm out of here. No. After he says this, Jesus says, and here I am. How different than our methods and system of correction and rebuke that we have today. Where we want to correct somebody and walk away. Jesus says, let me correct you. And then I'm going to lean in. I'm going to invite myself to dinner at your house. He leans into that relationship and not away from it. And even, I love this. I love this. Even when we're not right, even when Jesus looks at this church and makes this very harsh statement, he says, you make me sick. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Even then, Jesus says, but I still want to have dinner with you. And what have, how have we described dinner all summer? Intimacy, relationship. Wow. People make us mad. People mess up. We want to make them feel bad for it. They need to pay for their mistakes. And the last thing we want to do is lean into that relationship. And Jesus says, ah, 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 ah. Really, the only way we rebuke and the only way we step in to correct is if we love and love is then modeled and demonstrated by dinner together. Intimacy around the table. You know what's interesting about the church at Laodicea? They're the only one of seven churches where Jesus doesn't say something good in the beginning. All other six churches, Jesus does that good HR thing of, you know, when you have to review an employee. And it's like, well, you do really good showing up on time. However, there are 15 things I need to correct you on. <laughs> Jesus does that with six churches. But this one, they don't have that. But even in that, even when Jesus dives right in to say, I need to correct some things, it's not a rejection of the church. It's an invitation. Isn't that amazing? It's not a rejection, and I'm washing my hands. Jesus says it's an invitation. And this highlights the solution that Jesus brings to lukewarmness, their lukewarmness and sometimes ours. It's not more activity. It's not more sacrifices. It's not more Bible study. Do you know the solution to lukewarmness? It's dinner with Jesus. And did you notice who Jesus said can open the door? Who can open the door? Anyone. Now, you guys know... I hate individualism. I think in faith it is a toxic cancer that we need to be rooted out of the church. But in this moment, in this instance, Jesus actually says it doesn't require us to take a business meeting and have a vote to see if more than 50% agree that we should open the door to Jesus. He says anyone who hears his voice 
And I love this image because it tells us that even, even though we're part of a family, that any one of us can let Jesus in to bring about the renewal and the revival that this church needs, that they needed, that we need at times. It's for anyone who hears. But hearing is an interesting word. Hearing is, I think, the critical thing because it reminds me of all the noise I have in my life. It reminds me of all the things that might prevent me from hearing the knocking, the busyness, the distractions, all the things clamoring for my attention, and Jesus is knocking. Notice he's knocking. He doesn't pick up a boot and take it and knock that door down. That's not how he operates. But he's asking, can I come in? Can I eat with you? It reminds me of the story of Elijah who has run away, who's dealing with depression, and he's needing to hear from God, and there's earthquakes and fire and all these big demonstrations. And it says God came to him and spoke to him in a still, small voice, or as also could be translated, in the deafening silence. That's how God speaks. What would it mean for us, for you, to open the door to Jesus? What would that look like? It's a metaphor, right? Jesus isn't clearly at a door knocking. But there's an image there. What would that mean? Well, first it means we need to clear out the noise and the distractions and the busyness to be able to hear because it's happening. It might mean that we need to stop doing what we're doing preparing dinner, running kids a million places, watching Netflix, whatever, and we change direction and we move towards the door and take action to actually open it. You see, I am convinced that all of us are opening doors to things in our lives. We're opening the doors. We're letting things in. The question is, what are we opening the door to? Is it Jesus or is it other things that might be pulling us away from Jesus? As we talked this week in my message community group, we had this kind of idea, and I said, we, we kind of agreed. It. We wondered if the heading of this passage couldn't be changed from the church at Laodicea to the church in America. That's convicting, isn't it? A church that thinks they have it all together, needs nothing, money, got it, health, got it, significance, power, got it. A church that thinks they are the end-all and be-all, yep. But is our prosperity and our self-sufficiency the thing that's blinding us and deafening us to keep us from seeing and hearing Jesus? Is it keeping us from seeing who we really are? It is fascinating how arrogance can be so blinding and keep us from seeing reality. Are we going through the motions or are we really zealous for God? Are we passionate about the things God is passionate about? Or are we silent when we see injustice, but are we willing to speak in even when it costs us? When we read about the sacrificial spirit of the first century church, do we scoff and roll our eyes and look down on them, or do we feel the burning in our hearts calling us to more? That sacrificial spirit, that's what Jesus was talking about. He's calling the church at Laodicea to recapture it's what we need to be looking at when we see ourselves as well, that zealousness, that passion for God. 
In his letter from a Birmingham city jail, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a warning similar to Jesus' words here in Revelation. Listen to what he said. He said, But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I am meeting young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. Maybe again I've been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world? That's powerful, isn't it? And that was written when? In the 60s? And can we really say that much has changed since then? You see, we need to be aware of the cultural influences around us that can rub off on us and lull us into a sense of impotence and mediocrity. And we need to recognize those forces and do what Jesus is calling them to, some repentance and resetting our focus. And we need to see that Revelation 3 isn't about Jesus pointing out things, fix this, do this, do this, fix this, do this. It's about relationship. It's about what every sermon we've talked about this summer has been about. It's about relationship between you and Jesus. And when you think about your relationships, the human relationships you have, how do those go? Are they always unicorns and rainbows? No. There are highs and there are lows. There are ups and there are downs. That's how relationships work. And we know that relationships take work, even our relationship with Jesus We have to work to stay on the same page. We have to work to keep the lines of communication open. We have to work to keep the spark. And this warning to the church in Laodicea is a reminder that what we have and what we are experiencing is not a perfect faith. It begins with a high, oh, how I love Jesus, and nothing could ever change the way I feel until it does. And life hits us and knocks our legs out from under us, not just once, but a hundred times. And we begin to question and we see that life is difficult. And Jesus can be difficult to see in those moments at times. But the problem occurs in our human relationships when we stop trying. And the problem occurs in our faith when we stop trying. And Jesus is doing what he did when he was physically here on earth. He's looking at you this morning. He's saying, will you just pull out a chair for me at the table? I I am the solution for a staggering faith. I am the solution for a disillusioned faith. I'm a solution for a doubting faith. Just invite me to sit with you. And what's interesting, I don't know if you noticed this, but almost every story we read this summer, it was never Jesus had a party at his house. In fact, Jesus didn't have a house. It was always Jesus being invited in to somebody else's table. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing today. He's asking for that seat at your table. And when we open the door, when we pull out the chair for Jesus, transformation can occur. Now, for some people, that sounds great. And for some people, that is scary to have to change. But I will tell you, we don't walk away from a dinner with Jesus the same. It will change you. So I just end today with just this question. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you about this passage today, Revelation 3? Think about that. What may God might be saying to you this morning? And then the second question, what will you take away from our time together today 
into this week. Let's pray. God, sometimes we're scared.